This New America NYC event took place on November 15, 2016, and is a conversation that took place after Do Not Resist, a film screening, and features Craig Atkinson, director and producer, Do Not Resist, and Maria Panamarenko, deputy director, policing project, New York University School of Law. Hi everyone, so I'm Maria Panamarenko. I'm the deputy director at the Policing Project and very excited to have Craig Atkinson with us and thanks to all of you for being here as well. Uh, so just to dive in, I mean, you started recording this before Ferguson, I gather. So what motivated you to sort of look into these issues? Sure, so uh, my initial interest in this project um, stemmed from watching the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. And that was the first time that I had seen the level of equipment, the armament that police had. Um, I was comparing it to um, my father's era of police work. My father was a police officer for 29 years outside of Detroit, and he was actually a SWAT officer for 13 of those years. So I kind of grew up with the war on drugs era of policing kind of playing out in the background of day-to-day -day life. Um, and I had never seen the level of armament that the police had been given post 9-11. I didn't really realize that that's what I was seeing at the time when I was watching the aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing. But not just the equipment, it was also the mentality of the officers. I went up and interviewed people in conjunction with the project, and they said, yes, you know, we had law enforcement coming in our homes despite our protests that we didn't want them to search our homes. Some people that I spoke to were handcuffed face down on their front lawn for as much as six hours, never told why they were being detained. No charges were subsequently filed. And I also found out that the surrounding police departments basically just self-deployed. There was no central command to organize that deployment. And I found out that the surrounding police departments had shot their own people 12 times during that engagement. They actually shot their own police officers 12 times. So I heard that and seeing the level of equipment, I thought there at least was a training issue at hand, but I was very curious to know kind of what had happened, what had, what had changed from my, what I remember my father's era of SWAT to be to, compared to what I was seeing in the, in the days after the aftermath shooting. Not saying that his era of SWAT was was perfect, but this is the era of SWAT where it's the statistic, you know, 3,000 raids a year in the 1980s. This was the era, not the 80,000 raids a year that we um, see today. And I honestly was thinking that we were going to be able to create a film that would show the full breadth of the SWAT experience. Uh, I point people to the Pulse nightclub shooting, where they punctured a hole in the side of the nightclub with an armored vehicle and were able to rescue hostages uh, with that armored vehicle. I mean, that is a fantastic use of SWAT and something that I thought we were going to be able to demonstrate just to strengthen the arguments on both sides. Um, the thing is, you know, we would go out in these training exercises with the police departments and they said they're preparing for ISIS or Al-Qaeda or something like that. So I'd say, okay, let's see what it looks like. And we go out. Every raid that I did was for drugs and we never found anything. We did half a dozen um, search warrants during the course of making this film. We filmed in 18 states, 19 states, 18 different departments at about 20 ride-alongs about six um, drug search was never found anything. And so I was kind of met with the realization that, you know, I, we kept trying, trying to get access to show the full range of that experience, but, you know, we kept being left with what we were getting, which was the search warrants. So I decided, well, let's show exactly, you know, what's actually happening because yes, you know, you need this equipment for the rare instance, um, but those are so statistically rare. And what we portray in the film is really the day-to-day -day reality of, of, of SWAT work. SWAT has become a routine part of police work. I mean, every single felony search warrant in St. Louis County is conducted by the SWAT team. Well, you can imagine the number of uh, felony search warrants that probably don't require a 
SWAT team. I mean, they've done them for code enforcement in St. Louis County. We've seen around the country them doing uh, search warrants for unpaid student loans. You know, uh, Gibson guitars got raided for using illegal rare wood in you know their their guitars. So you know, we've just seen this um, this this mission creep with. Um, SWAT work, it's just interesting to know, you know, how did they um, apprehend Whitey Bulger, you know, most violent criminal in all of Boston for decades? Well, they found out he had a storage unit and they said, hey, someone broke into your storage unit and he went to go investigate the storage unit and they surrounded him and arrested him. So, you know, just a little bit of creativity like prevented from the full deployment of the SWAT team. But, you know, it was just disheartening to see when we're being told that it was going to be a drug kingpin and this, you know, I was expecting as Pablo Escobar with kilos of whatever, 20 minutes later, they're smashing out the windows. I don't know if you see, I almost dropped the camera. I was so surprised that this is what their approach was doing. I was just devastated to see the fact that they were bringing out a family with small children in the house. And then they tell us, well, SWAT warrants are 50-50. We find stuff half the, you know, half the time. And um, you just think about you know, the long-term psychological effect of having an occupying force coming into your home. Um, like, What is the long-term effect of that? I mean, I think it's obvious that um, it just creates such ill will in the community. Um, but I think also what we discovered is the one of the reasons how we got from 3,000 to 80,000 raids a year had a lot to do with this for-profit policing model that we've set up. Um, you know, when they're taking this guy's $876, they're doing that through civil asset forfeiture, which states that your property is guilty until you prove it innocent. How does one do that? It's nearly impossible, and it might cost $3,000 to get the money back, but you're only trying to get $876 back, and so you end up forfeiting it. And I'll say that the first thing that was said to us when we returned back from South, uh, South, the South Carolina raid was, do we seize anything? Do we seize anything? They wanted to know how much you know, money or assets they were able to obtain on that particular raid. And I just have seen that be such a motivating force for going out and doing these raids. Um, the idea of asset forfeiture makes sense on paper. Someone is damaging your community. You take their assets, you put into a general fund for the city. You can use um, those funds to, for roads, for schools, for you know, general betterment of the community. Well, the Fed stepped in a number of years ago and created the Equitable Sharing Program, which states that if you include one federal agent on your task force, then you don't have to put the money in a general fund. Your part department gets to keep 80% of the money. And the feds will take 20% as a kickback system. So you've created this for-profit policing model. If you look at the numbers, 2014 was the first year that American citizens had more money taken from them through asset forfeiture than they had taken from them through burglary. So five... <laughs> $5.1 billion, $5.1 billion taken from American citizens through asset forfeiture in 2014, whereas $3.5 billion was taken through American citizens through burglary. So we really have flipped this uh, equation on, the end, you know, on itself, and um, no longer are we viewing this as a protect and serve model, but truly as a, more of an occupying force wealth harvesting um, capacity. So, I mean, that was kind of the full range of how we came to be in our experience, but um, the, you know, the jump off point was because I thought there was a disconnect from what I remember my father's era of SWAT to be to, to what I was seeing. And to what extent did your story evolve as Ferguson happened? And like, did you set out to tell a story that was going to have race as such a large component? And that was very interesting. I mean, you know, we kind of saw the writing on the wall that something like this, you know, could be used um, in this way. But um, obviously, we had no way of anticipating that to actually happen. But um, 
yeah, I mean, it became very difficult uh, for us from a filmmaking perspective after the events in Ferguson because we thought we were going to be breaking the story, be breaking the news, and we filmed all this footage just to educate people on what was going on. And then obviously that conversation sparked up. So we were constantly met with then trying to hit a moving target. Everyone started to get their talking points. And at the time, it was like community versus um, you know police and the weapons of police and you know, anytime there's a divide and conquer happen, there's usually something far more nefarious kind of creeping up underneath. And what we started to observe were these technology companies that were returning back from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and or personnel going into the private sector and then selling to departments. I mean, there was one technology provider that we didn't feature in the film, but they took the exact same IBM platform that the NSA uses to do mass data collection, and he's licensing it to police departments for $1,000 a year subscription. And so I, when I asked, you know, how will this be used, they took me to the University of West Virginia and they showed me how they're ingesting all of the YouTube, Twitter, Facebook communications of their student body, comparing it to psychological profiles of people suicidal, mass murderers. Um, and they found, they showed me an example where they found a young woman saying, good night, y'all, and she's smoking a bowl of weed. So they went and solved that crime. Um, so here we are, you know, with the biggest surveillance uh, technology that the world has ever seen promised to only be used on terrorism and now it's being used on college campuses for small amounts of uh, marijuana. And so, um, you know, we, w we wanted to point both community and police to something that's coming down the line that even the police oftentimes didn't, aren't even aware of. I mean, you had the 21st Century Task Force meeting with, um, you know, which was supposed to be o Obama's chosen few to help advise on police work. And you had Police Commissioner Ramsey of Philadelphia. And he says, you know, license plate readers, we all have that. How long until facial recognition is an outplot and you're driving down the street and you're scanning faces of people? Well, we had already filmed the LAPD doing that a year and a half prior. We had already filmed that. So, you know, we could see that the president's chosen few weren't that tuned in to be able to advise on a, on a clear way forward. And so that's why we kind of shift focus in the third act of the film, which is this technology, because we were just trying to hint and prepare people for this next wave of what's coming down the line. But that was truly um, spawned out of, because we thought by the time we finished the film, no one would care about the Ferguson footage. Clearly, there'd be some sort of reforms to these programs and the news cycle would have moved on. So we were trying to future-proof the project by including that, um, but that was all part of because you know Ferguson sparked off. I mean, what's striking about the you know, technology and military kind of equipment link is the lack of public deliberation that you get about both of these. I mean, you, you know, have these departments who acquire technology. I don't know how many of you followed the news, but you know, after Ferguson, a lot of city councils started to kind of investigate whether you know their local departments had this technology and you have, you know, Davis, California discovering that they've had an MRAP that nobody on the city council knew existed. You have, you know, San Diego school district had um, grenade launchers that were being used with tear gas. I think LAPD schools also. And so you have, you know, starting to get inklings of democratic process, but it all happens long after this technology and equipment is acquired and yeah that was the other thing i mean you know any reforms to the program we knew that that technology is coming back so obama came out and said okay no more track tanks 
I mean, there's not that many track tanks out there, although I will say that the department in South Carolina actually had a track tank that they didn't give back. But we realized that none of that equipment was, it was coming back. So again, what was coming next was kind of our focus. But I mean, you see in the Senate meeting, I mean, for a moment there when I was filming the scene, I was like, my God, I got the swell of patriotism for, for a fleeting moment. Our elected officials really bring in the military industrial complex to task on, you know, why is this happening? And, but what came of that meeting? Nothing. Absolutely nothing came of, came of that meeting. So begs the question to me, well, who's in charge? Our elected officials can't bring these individuals to task. And they're just like, yeah, we have no oversight. No, you're not supposed to use it for crowd control, but it seems to go on. And you know, there's no reporting statistics. And there's a lot of police officers that we've shown the film to that actually are in favor of those reporting statistics because the individuals that are trying to reform the police departments themselves, they think that that, you know, that data could be incredibly valuable to what how often are things found in the home? What weapons are found, is anybody killed? And even basic reporting statistics could be helpful. There was one state that required it, and that was the state of Maryland. And that was only because the mayor of Berwyn Heights, Maryland, had his home raided by mistake. So wrong door raid, they go in, they shoot the guy's dogs, kill the dogs. He's handcuffed on the ground saying, I'm the mayor. They're like, get this guy to the loony bin. And someone's like, oh, shit, that's the mayor. And because obviously this happened to someone in power, then they, they passed um, legislation through the state um, government that required reporting statistics starting in 2010. And it basically confirmed everyone's inclinations. The ACLU report, my anecdotal evidence, it was like, you know, 90% of SWAT call-outs are for search warrants. The vast majority of those are for drug warrants. Uh, and so, um, you know, it basically supported what everyone was anticipating or thinking that they were gonna find. Well, the ballot initiative came up in 2014 and it fell off. So now there is zero reporting statistics. We're back to completely being in the dark and to when how SWAT is being used. Um, and I just think that it's one thing that we can start to analyze because if you're expecting Pablo Escobar and you find a gram and a half of weed, I just think that you should have to replace the windows or perhaps be penalized to um, de-incentivize that, that, those missions. You can't just do that 50% of the time and expect that you're not gonna create a generation of people who just absolutely hate cops. I mean, you, there has to be some sort of penalty. If you say that you're gonna find a kilo and you find nothing, you should have to pay for the window. You should have to pay the family for damages. I mean, I mean, was, was that? And the, and the assets, sure, sure. Yes, absolutely, the, the, at the very least. Um, and so I think that reporting statistics could help you know, um, start to identify you know, problems. So. What sort of reception have you gotten from law enforcement? I mean, we talk a lot about community policing. There's a lot of departments that have kind of embraced more of a community focus and recognized you know, importance of trust and legitimacy. Have you gotten any kind of favorable reaction? Has anybody recognized the cost yeah. that these sort of tactics impose? You know, absolutely. I think well, that was one of the um, most shocking things about sharing this film with law enforcement is that, I mean, I think the ones that we've sent it to, the agencies we sent it to, and it kind of hits a little bit too close to home, they're a little bit more standoffish, but I think that people that are at least have some contingent department that are working on changing the culture actually see this as a very valuable teaching tool. We had a screening at the John Jay Criminal Justice College, and there was 300 in attendance, and many were active duty NYPD, and they're like, 
thanks for making this film. It reflects reality. And there was one um, uh, ex-SWAT commander who got up and immediately tried to put some distance between what Dave Grossman teaches and what the NYPD does, which I thought was a good sign. I mean, I had to remind the guy that Dave Grossman is still teaching like 200 times you know, this next year. So although larger departments are kind of being more progressive and moving on, obviously there's uh, plenty of departments that are, are still lagging behind. But we also had a really interesting screening in Dallas. And as we know, Dallas lost five officers in a very violent fashion. And um, there's an there's a officer by the name of Sergeant Ivan Gunther. And the Washington Post did an amazing expose on his experience of that night. I mean, he was like next in line. So one officer gets killed, next officer gets killed, next officers get killed, everyone starts scrambling. He was like the next officer to get killed. And he had a very horrific experience. He was taking like the cellophane off cigarette packs and putting over sucking chest wounds and watching his officers die in front of him. That individual came to our screening and participated in the Q&A. And he said, again, thanks for making this film. It really opened my eyes to how they're policing in various parts of the country. And I think that we could absolutely use this as a teaching tool. And so I was just encouraged by that. And so I think what we're gonna do, we already have feelers out to over 50 departments. Um, it looks like we're gonna be able to do a police academy, police um, department tour with the film and truly put it in front of the people who actually need to see it. I mean, we're not really saying anything new to communities that have experienced this for the last decades. I think we might be providing a visual example that that everyone can use. But I think this also could be a visual example for departments that are trying to reform their departments. I mean, there's a lot of people working with, good people working with police work that have a very hard time going against that ingrained culture. I mean, in NY, there was a story three weeks ago in the NYPD where someone was a whistleblower, an officer was a whistleblower, and he went out on a run two weeks later and called for backup and no one came to help him out. So it's very difficult for some of these officers to really, you know, do the types of reforms I think we're all asking our officers to do. So hopefully, you know, we're at least providing another visual example for those people doing the work in, in hopes of, you know, them taking this and, and pulling it apart with their team. So we'll see if that if that actually comes to be, but it looks like we'll be able to do that. I'm curious just about the making of the film, the scenes that you chose to include. I mean, what struck you as kind of the most powerful or memorable moment that you saw that you kind of wanted to make sure it was included? Uh, I think one of my favorite scenes is the first scene we ever recorded in conjunction with the film, and that was the Concord City Council meeting. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. And that was the scene that I thought we actually had a, had a topic on here that we could explore. And more than, more than anything, it was because, you know, those people, when they just rubber stamp the, you know, the grant to, you know, um, get this armored vehicle after the citizens made very compelling claims as to why they didn't want this in their community. Like those individuals, I'm sure, were absolutely demoralized, you know, that particular day. But I was very thankful that they actually took it upon themselves to speak out because I was able to be there and capture it. And here we are three years later actually, you know, being able to speak about it. So to me, there's a small ray of hope in that, in that, you know, you don't, you speak out, you, you voice your opinion, you stand for something, you don't know how it's going to ricochet effect and, and, and move on. And, you know, it's that spirit of, of, of protest and working within your local and state government, which is where I truly think this change has to come from, that they were able to pass um, preliminary laws that require a criminal conviction before seizing assets in New Hampshire, which is a huge step forward. 
Um, California voted on it about three and a half weeks ago to require a criminal conviction before seizing someone's assets. And I think that this would go a long way to start to de-incentivize police departments from going out there and raising huge, you know, significant portions of their operating revenue from ticketing their citizens. I mean, that's essentially what was happening in, in St. Louis County. You know, there's 90 cities in St. Louis County, small, tiny cities all over the place because back in the day, they didn't want black people moving to their community. So a subdivision would incorporate as a city and then pass a bunch of laws that would make it disadvantageous for low-income people to move there. And so here we are, 2014, all these years later, none of these cities can afford themselves. And so what did they start doing? Started ticketing their citizens to raise the operating revenue for their cities up to 30%. So you have a town called Jennings right next to Ferguson. They lost a million dollars in sales tax revenue one year because they lost a shopping center and they lost that sales tax revenue. Very next year, a million dollars more money from ticketing their citizens, directly correlated. And you just think about how many of those police and interactions that never needed to happen, how many of those turned violent? How many of those turned into a traffic ticket that someone couldn't provide, couldn't pay for that would then ter- cause them to go to jail because they had a bench warrant and then they have to survive in jail. So you become violent or you do whatever you can to survive, but then you're out six months later. And then now you take someone that just had a broken taillight and now has been you know, you know, institutionally uh, made violent. Uh, and just the cost to society is, is, is so great that is it really worth you know, treating your citizens like ATMs and having the police departments be the de facto tax collectors for the, the community? And I talked to a lot of officers in Ferguson that said, we didn't sign up for this. We'd much rather do you know, proactive police work, but we're, so much of our day is just raising this operating revenue. And obviously it just puts uh, those people completely at odds with the community, despite the best intentions. If those officers did have the best intentions, their, their top, the top-down objective for the police model for the community puts them at direct odds. And we talked to a lot of law enforcement that were opposed to doing that, but I mean, in the position that they had for, the, for that time period, they didn't really have a choice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So asset forfeiture strikes me as this issue that's actually gotten a lot of kind of play and a lot of political attention, and you actually have kind of more of a bipartisan consensus. I mean, Koch Foundation is now working pretty extensively on asset forfeiture issues. It's actually something that's gotten traction, whereas I think a lot of the issues that you're tackling, like technology, less so. Like, I'm wondering if you've kind of seen more of a debate as either as you've been showing the film or as you've kind of moved forward in the process. Like, are people talking about these issues more? Uh, you know, well... <clears throat> It seemed as though because we started a year prior to Ferguson that we almost got ahead of the news cycle, like say six to nine months. And you know, we finished about six months ago and here we are now here starting to hear more stories about uh, surveillance technology. And <clears throat> one of my biggest concerns with that, there's two things that concern me. One, is it constitutionally legal to take the averaging of, all, of, of a group of people's behavior and apply it to the individual? I don't really think so. There's plenty of people that think that it is, and I think that that's the way that it will be ruled on, but I personally don't think it is. And the other thing is, if we're going to run algorithms over data sets to determine whether or not a fetus is going to commit a murder by the time they're 18, we better make sure that 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 data is infallible. And I know the data that they're using, they're using CompStat data, and CompStat data is crime statistical data in a geographic region. I have Dave Grossman, the police trainer, saying, I know tons of uh, police chiefs around the country that have been fudging the numbers for years. And that's true, not all police chiefs, but a lot of police chiefs started to use fantasy accounting techniques Uh, calling some aggravated assaults simple assaults, and all of a sudden crime is going down in their community. Why were they doing this? Because if you don't have crime rate go down in your community, you might not get the federal funding next year. And so you started to fudge the numbers in order to make the crime rate go down. 
well, here we are all these years later, and that's the data that they're using to run the algorithms over to determine the fetus, the killer fetus, and whether or not um, you know, people are going to be, what level of supervision they get post-incarceration. Uh, and I just think that we're gonna get into this feedback loop where we start to find what we're looking for instead of a, an actual tool that helps us solve problems uh, across the board. I mean, are we crystallizing and digitizing our old thinkings about race, our old thinkings about why crime and murder happens into a ones and zero category that reduces human behavior down to uh, ones and zeros, and I just don't think that human behavior uh, responds like that. And like Richard Burke says, yes, if you're truly unique, it doesn't work. Well, I think, what are we all striving for? I mean, I think that that's the part of humanity that I think keeps us human, is that striving, at least, for the uniqueness. So I just, I just fear that we're going to start to you know, compress everything down and, and just get into this feedback loop, finding things that we're already looking for. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.